Look at somebody and say, it's good to see you. Hey, we're so glad that you're here. Welcome to Crossroads Church. My name's Sam. I have the privilege of being the lead pastor here at Crossroads. And what that means is every single week, I try to tell the greatest story ever told. Now, not because I'm some great communicator or it's even my story, but I believe this story is a story about Jesus. And Jesus is the greatest person to ever walk the face of the planet. I actually believe he's more than just a person. I believe he's God in the flesh. And so if you've ever asked the question, what is God like? You don't have to look any further than the person of Jesus. And we believe the Bible is this story about Jesus. We say this around here. We say it's all about Jesus. We wrote it on the wall if you need some help with that. And don't worry, Lompoc Campus. Uh, I know Tyler eventually will get that on the wall. And if I say it that way, he's probably going to spray paint it on the wall this weekend, right? And so uh, we're so glad you're joining us. If you're joining us at the Lompoc Campus, maybe you didn't realize there's a gathering of people at 213 North J Street. And so if you're watching online, you live in Lompoc, or maybe you're visiting in here today and you didn't know we had a Lompoc campus. It's at 213 North J Street, and there's a gathering of people there who are uh, gathering uh, not around a church name or building or a pastor, but around the person of Jesus. Amen? And so it doesn't matter where or when you gather. It matters that you gather. Amen? The church is not a building or a place. The church is the people of God gathered together. And so, uh, hey, uh, if you need a Bible to follow along today, whether you're at the Lompoc campus or here in Buellton, you can just slip up your hand and one of our ushers will get a Bible to you. And then if you don't have a Bible, take that blue Bible, uh, go home, read it every single day, because every time you read the Bible, uh, you get to meet with Jesus. Amen. And three of you think that, right? Every time you read the Bible, you get to meet with Jesus. Amen. Amen. So, hey, turn in your Bible to the opening pages of the book, the book of Genesis. Uh, We're going to be in Genesis chapter 3, a series that we started a few weeks ago, and uh, it will last us for the next several years. And uh, so I want to read just a couple verses here in chapter 3, and then we'll come back through the sermon. I'll read more of the text as the sermon goes along, but I want to set up Um, some of the context and give you some things to think about before we get into the meat of the text. I want you to look at verse number 14. Verse number 14. You say amen when you're there. Chapter 3, verse 14. Amen. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. I will put angst, I will put division, enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Will you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you for who you are and who you are to us. I ask for your grace today that as we look at these scriptures that have been going viral for thousands of years. You would help us. You would um, 
Cause us to be challenged and stirred by them. Let us hunt and search for truth. And if we seek, we'll find you, Jesus. We ask for your grace today. Help us for your glory and the good of this valley. And everyone said, amen. Amen. So we've been in this series uh, over the past few weeks. And and we uh, are kind of turning a... Uh, a kind of section or kind of turning a page, if you will, literally and metaphorically, uh, but in a very real way, uh, kind of the sequence of events that happen in the book of Genesis. And so uh, over the first couple chapters, which is the creation account from a, from a kind of a wide lens angle, from a kind of top-down view, and then chapter two kind of zooms in on day six and God's making of man and woman, Adam and Eve, and putting him in the garden to tend to the garden, to have dominion over the garden, to name the animals. And then we see that God sees that it's not good for man to be alone, and so he gives him a helpmate, and he makes woman from his side, takes, puts Adam to a deep sleep, takes a rib from his side, and makes woman. And there's this marriage ceremony, if you will, and we get even uh, how we think about marriage from these opening pages of Scripture. So it says that a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast and cleave to his wife. That's kind of the end of chapter 2. And then we get to this chapter, chapter 3. And it kind of shifts from the creation account and it goes into a narrative story. And, and some people would consider this Hebrew poetry, if you will. It, it, it's a Hebrew story. It uses uh, in the opening pages some some what seems on the surface poetry and there's some um, some patterns to it that's why we attribute poetry to it and then then there's this narrative thing that begins to take place and we have to be careful that when we say poetry and narrative we don't mean fiction that we can actually uh, talk about these events and there's a story being told to us about these events that happen in chapter three. And, we, and over the past couple of weeks, we've kind of introduced this idea of uh, how we look at one thing kind of determines how we look at everything. And how, how we view certain things can change how we view everything. Now, the inverse can be true, and we can get stuck in the moment where we think one thing is everything, and we can kind of get stuck. And ultimately, what we needed is to broaden our view of things, and we call this a world view, how I view the world, how I view these four categories of things really determine how I view everything, four things, four Everything and they have to uh, they have to be congruent with one another. They have to be consistent. They can't contradict one another. And those four categories essentially answer four questions: Where did we come from? Why are we here? What are we doing? And where is this thing going? In other words, what is our origin, meaning, morality, and destiny? And how we think about these things. And sometimes in uh, our lives, we kind of ignore certain parts of these until we find ourselves conflicted in a moment where these things are brought to the surface. And, and, and you don't think about origin, but yet, l- let's be honest, we see that the world uh, has meaning to it. H- how many of you think that there's meaning in your marriage? 
Get, man, get your hands up. There's, uh, hey, hey, man, there, there's, uh, how, how many think that, that your kids, uh, they're, they're, they weren't randomly uh, given to you, but they have meaning in your life, amen? How, how many you think that the relationships around you, your, 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 your church and your pastor mean something to you, amen, right? Uh, I was hoping for a little better response to that one, right? Uh, the reality is, is we don't think that the things around us are, are by happenstance or random chance. We feel as though there's meaning to life. And, and ultimately, if there's meaning to life, there's a reason for it. And, and yet, we've been talking over the past couple of weeks, I've brought kind of... Uh, some some arguments uh, against accepting on the surface uh, Darwinian evolution, the idea that we are made of random pro- natural processes and, and trying to convince you to look at the evidence, not just appeal to authority. See, oftentimes is what we do is we only appeal to a, an authority figure on a certain subject. We don't necessarily look at those things for ourselves. What is the evidence? And the reality is uh, even uh, leading evolutionary uh, thinkers or biologists would suggest that the fossil record is lacking in its evidence in, in supporting Darwinian evolution, that most of it is pieces of fragmented skulls and bones. And in other words, they say this, the story that science is telling is Darwinian evolution, and they're using the fossil record as an illustration. Or in other words, there's a story, there's a narrative, there's something I want you to accept, and I'll use illustrations to support that evidence. We've been talking about uh, these uh, kind of problems with Darwinian evolution and ultimately how uh, those things get propagated, that there are actually preachers and proponents of these theories that tell a story and don't want you to move beyond that particular story. Even um, Richard Dawkins would say that anyone who doesn't uh, agree, doesn't adhere to evolution, is either uh, ignorant, stupid, or insane. How many of you like to be called any of those things? See, none of us want to be called these things. We we want to actually live in a place where I'm la- where I'm liked, where I'm affirmed, where where I'm in a setting where where my biases, my convictions, my belief systems are not challenged. I want them to be confirmed. We have confirmation bias. We tend to put ourselves around people who only confirm what we already think because we really like what we think, don't we? We like our views. We like our patterns. We like our habits. And to move beyond those things can be challenging, can be troubling for us. And so we, we don't want to be seen as stupid or ignorant or insane And so oftentimes we'll appeal to authority figures on those things rather than actually looking at the evidence. We'll listen to secular preachers tell a story. Now, now the the inverse has to be 
true. We as Christians, we ought to be looking for truth because I'm convinced that if we go looking for truth, we'll bump in to Jesus because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He, he is saying I, he is the embodiment of truth. I was discussing this just in between services. Think about the preposterous, uh, the preposterous assertion of Anthony Fauci uh, suggesting that he is the embodiment of science. And to criticize him is to criticize science itself. It's the same notion as Jesus claiming to be the way, the truth, and the life. And so to criticize or to critique is to critique science itself. Now, here's the problem with that is there is video evidence that we can go, hey, you said one thing on one day and something different on another day. Here's the difference with Jesus. Both political parties, the conservatives, the Jews, and the liberals, the Romans, both put Jesus on trial and neither one of them could find fault with him. They would say, no, 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 you crucify him. No, you judge him. And yet Jesus is the very embodiment of truth. We as individuals are lacking and flawed. We in all areas, whether it's science or theology, have to have the humility to suggest that we do not embody a subject. We do not embody truth. We are searching for Truth And what we are convinced of as believers is that if I do look for truth, I will find the person of Jesus. Humility has to be on the forefront of this conversation. And yet, when I get to places like this, this book, I, I, some of us are wrestling with this this reality of when I read the text, there's some parts of the Bible, let's be honest, that we want to adhere to and other parts we go, I don't really know. Think, think about your, your, uh, your natural tendency to read the Bible, to read, to hear these stories and go, man, there's some parts of the Bible that I want to adhere to and then there's other parts that I go, I don't really know. Now, can I tell you that this is not a new thing? This isn't a new problem. We're, we're wrestling with, okay, the Bible says one thing, but I have a tendency to agree with some parts and want to throw out other parts. Why is that? Well, we're going to read a story in the book of Genesis where the enemy's tactics says, Early on, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God made. And he said to the woman, did God really say? Now think about all the times we go, does, it, does the Bible really, I mean, I mean, does God really say that for my life? Do I, I can accept this part, but maybe not this particular part. Can I say that's not new? It's not a generational thing. It's not because there's TikTok and Instagram and because there's Twitter and because we have a new generation that every generation from this chapter on has been deceived by the enemy to say, did God really say? 
and we're tempted to wrestle with. And ultimately, when we read this particular book, we'll have to wrestle with, is this true? I mean, I, I mean, is this a place? Like, was Eden a real place? Is this, is this metaphor? Is this allegory? Or is this actual true events told in a story to let me know the big scheme of things, what has happened, what has fractured the world, and why do human beings have a tendency to try to decide right and wrong on their own, and how horribly that goes wrong. Well, see, the first thing I have to wrestle with is, was, was Eden a real place? Now, when I read about this Garden in chapter 2 that God made man. He put him in the middle of this garden. There's these rivers flowing out of it. And God actually met with man in this particular place. You go, man, well, I don't really want to wrestle with that question. But see, how you wrestle with that one thing determines everything. How you answer origin really affects meaning. Are you actually made in the image of God? Have you been given purpose and design? Do you see design in the universe? Or are you tempted to remove it? See, Richard Dawkins, the new atheist, would say that we have, to rem- we have to avoid the temptation of inferring a designer when we see the appearance of design. We have to avoid the temptation. Using the word temptation would mean that this would be a negative thing. This would be a horrible thing if there was actually a designer. And yet, the same person would ask us to use reason and logic to say, did you just suggest in Genesis 3 that a snake talked? Reason and logic would tell me that I've not experienced that. And yet, he tells me to turn reason and logic off, avoid temptation, that when I see the appearance of design to infer a designer avoid that temptation. But we know this. Reason and logic tells me if there's a building, there is a... Thanks, friend. If there's a builder, there's a... If there's a building, there's a builder. If there's a painting, there's a painter. If there's music, then there's a worship team. And there's a a symphony of sound that you experience. And yet... It's put in order, what seemingly is chaos. Think about the difference between noise and music. Man, imagine, and I don't want anyone to get any ideas, but imagine if if someone just went over here at the Bultus campus, we have a piano off to the side. What what if during the worship uh, uh, experience this morning, someone went off to the the side stage and just started playing random notes uh, and tried, tried to think that that would somehow fit into the symphony of sound that you experienced in the worship team this morning? Like what they were playing, each person did not have a random part of music this morning. They were playing a specific part that somehow, even when people who study music theory will talk about music as this code in the universe that certain sounds go together and somehow they make this beautiful music that, that we gravitate towards, that, that actually music is the expression of Imago Dei or being made in the image of God, that we take chaos, noise, and make something that's beautiful and orderly, which is the opening pages of 
Genesis. And so your faculties tell you that random things don't create beautiful things. Randomness and out of order, it takes design. It takes an artist taking the array of, 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 of paints and colors, the palettes of colors, and moving them together in a very specific and orderly way to create a design that you and I behold and look at and gravitate. And people will stand in, in line in museums to see these paintings. What, what is it? it? It's just random colors on a canvas. No, 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 no. It's taking the chaos and randomness and making something beautiful that people stand and behold. So if you ever look at a sunset, you look at the created order, you begin to look at human beings who have a difference to them and uniqueness to them. You begin to behold relationships. You say there is design in the universe and so there must be a designer. Well, how I answer that first question determines how I see the meaning in the universe and ultimately it moves me down to morality and ultimately destiny. Where, where does this thing go? See, most people believe in a spiritual state, a, a, a spiritual status to the human being. Most people believe that we are spirit trapped in an earthly body, that somehow there's something more to this thing. And yet the Bible tells us that God has hidden eternity in our hearts, that something in us tells us that there's something more to things. Ultimately, Jesus answers this question, uh, the question of eternity, the question of destiny. And all these coincide one to another. Remember the words of Jesus. He says, in this world, you will have trouble. How many of you found that to be true? <laughs> in this world, you will have trouble. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many Rooms. I think if he was talking to a bunch of sci-fi nerds, he would have said there are many dimensions. There are spaces and places you do not know of. And if it was not true, I would not have told you so. Now, think about what Jesus is saying about heaven, a place. And yet he says there's this place. What is heaven? Heaven is where Jesus is. Are you with me? Heaven is where Jesus is, not our final destination of a place, but a person. How do I know this? Well, the half, or not the half, the, the cousin of Jesus, John the Baptist, makes this declaration when Jesus comes onto the scene. He says, behold, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. See, heaven is where Jesus is, and Jesus is preparing a place for us. You know, when people describe what heaven is like, I always ask the question, like, did you read that or did someone tell you that? See, we have to be honest about where we are, even as believers. As I said, we need to ask the scientific community when they mean science, what do they mean? Is it a person or is it a method? Is it a collection of evidence? Did I, did I just take what the authority figure told me or did I look at what the evidence actually says. 
Well, the same thing is true, I think, for Christians. Sometimes we appeal, like those who follow science, appeal to authority. Oftentimes we do that with a preacher, some preacher I heard, some, some book I read. Can I, can I just tell you that, that when I was a kid and, and I heard pastors talk about heaven, it used to freak me out. I don't know about, I don't know about you. How many of you were scared of heaven? Right, because they were like, "Listen, it's gonna be it's gonna be one long worship service." And I was like, "That sounds like hell, right? That sounds like heaven, right?" Because our band was terrible. Like, we gotta stay here forever, right? We're just gonna be locked in. No, no, no. Like most of the time, when people tell you about heaven, it comes from mythology. It comes from a movie they watched. Uh, from uh, a Patrick Swayze and a Demi Moore movie, right? Like most of the time they didn't actually read it because if you read the book, see, see the start of the books like the end of the book. There's this book, Revelation, which Revelation is not a book about the end of the world. It's actually a book and tells us in the first part of Revelation, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, meaning that the book of Revelation is about I get better at my job, right? The book of Revelation is about Jesus, just like every other book in the Bible. And so I don't go looking for this thing. I want to confirm that my biases and what, what I already believe, I actually have to go into it and look for the person of Jesus. And the end of the book says there is not, we don't all end up in heaven, newsflash. It says that we end up with Jesus in a new heaven and a new earth. Just crash everyone's bubble for a moment, right? We end up with Jesus, which is where heaven is, and there's a new heaven and a new earth. And it says that the glory of God fills the earth like the waters cover the sea, that, that there's no even need for the sun, that the glory of the Son of God will light this city that is this new heaven and new earth. Well, the book, the end of the book tells me about this very real place. Because you read the book of Revelation, you go, is it allegory? Is it metaphor? Do I believe at the end of things there is a real place? Well, Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble. If you believe in God, believe also in, in me. I go to prepare a place for you that where I am you may be also. So I believe Jesus. Why do I believe Jesus? Because Jesus came, lived, predicted his own death, and then pulled off Easter. Nobody saw it coming, all right? And if you see a dead man walking, it will fundamentally change you. And Jesus died and rose again, so I believe him over you. And he says that this is a real place, but it's a spiritual place and an earthly place. I, I kind of made up this term, so you call it a Pastor Samism. It's a place where heaven and earth co-reside, coexist, co-reside heaven and earth together. This is a real place. So then, at the end of the book, if this earthly and spiritual place is real, then when I get to the first of the book in Genesis, and the Bible tells me about Eden, a place where God walked in the cool of the day. This is a place where God walked. This is a place where heaven and earth co-resided. So that means when I stand in the middle looking back or looking forward, it tells me that these places are not like this place. Although my heart tells me about, gives me some 
type of hope, gives me some type of glimpse. My spirit man tells me that there's more. And so something in me tells me that that place I'm going is not like this place. Are you with me? First John says this, I don't know yet what will be like, but I know when I see Jesus face to face, we will be like him. Think about that as we look at this particular story. I know that when I see him face to face, we will be like him. And yet, I wrestle with the place of Eden, and you're quick to go, well, there are things in this book that don't happen like here. That's right, just like things will happen there that don't happen here. See, Eden was a spiritual place and an earthly place. This is a place not like here. So when I read the book, I have to understand that, that this is a place where God actually walked with man. There was no separation between God and man. There was no corruption. This, this was a, a glorious place. Eden literally meant unadulterated pleasure, unfiltered, everything that you can imagine. That is this place, the fulfillment of everything. That's where we started. That's where we're going. That's the story of the book. It starts here. That's why the Bible talks about redemption, bringing things that were pulled apart back together. The Bible talks about reconciliation, bringing heaven and earth together, starting with the person of Jesus that says the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so I read the opening pages of this book. I get to chapter three and it says this. Now the serpent was more crafty then all the other beasts of the fields that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Notice that the enemy's first tactic is this continual tactic. Did God really say? Does the Bible really say? Does the Bible really forbid? Does the Bible really ordain this? Does the Bible really say this for human relationships and forgiveness and human sexuality and gender and forgiveness and grace and goodness and judgment? Does God really say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. She comes back with the truth of what God said, but even with her own interpretation of it. God never told her not to touch it. She adds that part. She goes, no, 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 I, this was a big deal, and this is what I took away from it. He told me not to even touch it. But the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. For God knows that when you eat, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And notice that oftentimes that second level of deception is kind of where we fall at. Oftentimes the first part of it, especially for us as believers, will we'll combat with the word of God. But when the enemy then takes it again and twists it, like he'll come out and say, did God really say? And you're like, no, 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 he said it. I read it. Pastor Sam preached it, I know, right? But then he takes it a little deeper where we have to dig, where we have to take responsibility. 
And he twists it. He doesn't come out and say, listen, worship me. Go my way over God's way. I know he's given you all good and perfect things. He's given you this garden Eden, which is an unadulterated pleasure, all this goodness. But did he really say, is it really his way or the highway? He doesn't really mean that. Then he takes the truth and he twists it in such a way that it so easily just goes right past us. He uses a tactic and we kind of get caught in the snare of the enemy where he tells us something truthful but twists it and we buy into it. What does he say? No, he knows that if you eat of this, you won't surely die. You will be like him, knowing good from evil. He knows that you will be like him, knowing good and evil. You will be like God. Now, what's the irony of that? In the opening pages of Scripture, says that God made man in our image. The first, the first clue that God is a triune God, represented as a personal God, that he will reveal himself through Scripture in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let us make man in what? Our image image. See, the irony is they already were like God. And the temptation for them was, no, 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 no. He knows that you'll be like him. The enemy didn't, the temptation, the the prize at the end of the reward was not being like God. It was actually being more like the enemy, deceived and fallen, living by lies and not by the truth. Now think about that statement that we said in 1 John. The statement's always been true from the beginning of the story. God has placed us above the beasts of the fields. He has made us unique in all of creation. And his redemptive plan was to always restore that. Where John says, I don't know yet what we'll be like. But when I see Jesus face to face, we will be like him. See, that's the truth. That's the glorious good news. That's what the New, uh, the New Testament is telling. Notice that the same temptation of the enemy is the very same good news. We will be like God, but he, he skews the path. He says, you can be like God by doing it your way, not God's way. What a lie. Yes, the goal is to be image bearers of God. It is to be like God, bearing his goodness and his love and his glorious grace, to be his image bearers. But what the temptation was is that we could decide what was good and evil on our own. You can be the God of your own universe. You don't have to go his way. The enemy's temptation is just do you, friend. Just live your truth. It doesn't matter what is true. It matters what's true to you. You you can referee your own game. You ever tried to referee your own game? Doesn't go well, friend. You you, you ever watch parents referee a soccer match? Doesn't go well, right? Because their kids are on the field, right? And they're living vicariously through that. They're like, I'm going to turn pro. Like, you're going to turn pro? That's your kid, bro, right? He's like, we're going to turn. No, no. 
right? Like, like it doesn't work when we try, we try to referee and make our own values. Now, now think about what happens when human beings begin to make their own values. See what happens. She says back, to the serpent, the, the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die for God knows that when you eat, your eyes will be opened. Here's the truth part. Your eyes will be open. You will be like God. You already are knowing good and evil, but your tactic was to fall to temptation, to de- be deceived and go your way, follow Satan's way, the serpent's way rather than God's way. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes, And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. To make one wise. Notice that she, the the conversation gets conflated. That knowledge and wisdom are the same thing. Notice that the, the tree was the knowledge of good and evil. But she perceived that if I had more knowledge, I would be more wise. Now think about where we are today, this old conversation that we're still having today, that, that just because we have more information, we have the internet, we, we, we have an abundance of information. We, got, we, we, we stand around with our phones in our hands singing, I got the whole world in my... See, you, you know that, that you're not everywhere. You're not omniscient. And you're not omnipresent. You don't know all things and you're not in all places. And you know that to be true till you put a phone in your hand. And then you're like, I'm everywhere at one time. And I know all things. And yet from Genesis 3 until 2022, we've been conflating that if we know more things, we will make wiser choices. The deception. So she eats she decides to go the enemy's way. Then, her eye, then she took it and gave it to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then their eyes were both opened and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloth. And then they heard the sound of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord and among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree in which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman who you gave me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, was this that you have done? She said, it was the serpent who deceived me and I ate. Notice what happens Oftentimes, our judgment of things, when we think we know everything, a lot of times our finger pointing is to cover up our shame or our nakedness. To cover up our insecurities, we point blame to others. Adam, did you do this? It was the woman you gave me. He, he's like, it's your all's fault. Like, think of the tendency, no, 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 it wasn't me. And then Eve quickly goes, no, 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 it was the serpent. All of a sudden, casting blame to cover up. And yet, consciousness has entered in, a conscious reality that there is good and evil. And what is it about mankind that we can have what is good and long to know which is e- that which is evil? Think about to this point, 
God has made everything. And after the first day, God said it was... I get better at my job. After the first day, God said it was... And the second, the third, fourth. It's very good. They already knew goodness. And yet they longed, thinking it would make them like God if they got to decide what was good. Not following God's path, but making their own judgment. Longing to know what was evil. Longing to decide on their own. To be the gods of their own universe. Rather than following God's way, going their own way. And yet, not having the perspective. Not having God's wisdom. Thinking that knowledge would somehow fix the problem. Think about our cultural prophets and podcasters. Think about the idea. If we could just get people more educated, they'll make less terrible choices and yet it doesn't matter if you can be wealthy and educated and make terrible choices we think that it's a it's a knowledge problem if if we could just get the world to see the answers through this dogma or this doctrine this was mark's idea of communism if we could just let people know if we could just educate we could get everyone on the same page and yet Marx may have an accurate assessment of economics, and that's up for debate. What he has an inaccurate assessment of is anthropology, the human condition, sinfulness, thinking that knowledge will change it. This is the temptation of the enemy. If you, if you, were just, if you just had more knowledge, you would be wise. You could decide on your own what was right and what was wrong. I think about even now, like our political parties, depending on where you're from or your persuasion, how your upbringing, we are so divided on what we think is right and what we think is wrong. And the Bible says that in the last days, they'll call evil good and good evil. Man, I, I heard Bill Maher on a podcast the other day. He was trying to throw kudos to the pro-life community. And he says, I, I'll agree with him. I understand why they think abortion is murder. I just don't think that all life is precious. I just don't agree. What's he deciding on his own? The gods of, his, of their own universe. See, all of these moral issues, see, the worldview changes right here. How you see the origin. Did God make us in his image? Well, that's where our meaning comes from. We're reflecting him. We're, we are like him. This is where morality comes in. Do you decide on your own? Are you the judge of your own universe? Do you get to decide, I'll take this, but did God really say are there parts of the scripture, are there parts of things that God says that I adhere to and other parts not? See, how I answer one thing will determine everything. Where, do I, where does morality come in? And who decides and who judges? And yet, this was the moment when Adam and Eve hid themselves, they realized their own shame. They realized their inability to decide what was right and wrong on their own. 
that they had fractured everything. And then God says to the serpent, The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock, above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and, the dust, you, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Right here is where even though there's what the enemy meant for evil, God will turn around and use for good. As the start of this, he says, this is the curse. This is what's happened as a result. The serpent has deceived and he starts with the serpent. He starts with the father of lies who would twist his word to deceive us, thinking that somehow we could do it on our own and we were never designed to be alone. And yet he says to the serpent, you're cursed. On your belly you shall go, dust you shall eat. And then he says this statement. This is where the the poetry and prophecy come into play. He says, I'll put conflict between you and the woman. On your offspring and her offspring, you shall bruise, he shall bruise your head and you'll bruise his heel This is the first messianic prophecy. This is the first verse where we see the foretelling of the person of Jesus and the work of the cross. In the opening pages. In the opening pages, although at a result of our sin, our decisions, because of Adam's decision, and yet God says this, no, 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 there'll come a day And Satan, because you've done this, this serpent, you old snake, there'll come a day and the offspring of a woman, he'll crush your head. And in the act, you'll bruise his heel. By his wounds, we are saved. The chastisement of our peace was laid upon him. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. The New Testament tells me if the enemy knew what he was doing, they never would have crucified him. And yet, he told him from day one, hey bud, there's a day coming. You deceived my kids. There's a day coming. And I'll use the woman who you deceived and she'll bear a son. And your offspring, those you've deceived, they'll put him to death. But in this act, he'll crush your head. The Bible says that he exhausted the work of the enemy. He defeated the works of Satan on that day, the cross. This was the day. This is the first time we see good news right in the middle where the enemy meant something evil, where the enemy deceived, where the enemy lied, where the enemy said, you can do it on your own. And we made a mistake and we were hidden and full of shame. He said, no, 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 I'll cover you and I have a plan and I'll be the one to carry out the plan. He goes on, then tell the result of this fall. 
the result of sin and corruption. From that day on, everything changed. When we look back and go, that place was not like this place. That's right, from here on. What we experience now is Genesis 3 on. This is what we've been experiencing. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. And the lady said, oh no. Now think about, think about even the good news in that. Think about that. Every Mother's Day I talk about what, what women can teach us that men can't about the gospel. Because here's what happens. A mother will go through the worst pain known to women because men know nothing about it. They'll go through the worst pain. And in a moment, when they hold that child, all pain and suffering goes away. They hold a child. And that's something we don't understand. When the Bible says, I do not consider my present sufferings worthy to be compared to the greatness of knowing God. You go, that doesn't make sense. No, the only example I have is a mother. Ask her what it's like to in a moment forget about pain and suffering for the greatness of knowing another person. And yet, let's be honest. What do we say? Anything good comes from hard work. Anything good comes through trial. Anything worth anything comes through some pain. Why is it that mothers have a bond with their children that's so different than any other bond in all of creation? Is it what they went through to bear a child? Even in the curse, God is bringing goodness. Even in, in the difficult things, what happens? A bond that can't be broken? Out of the pain of childbirth, God tells us, and yet then he uses this to say the whole earth is groaning and travailing like a woman in the, in the pains of childbirth waiting for the day. The manifestation of the children of God, even through the curse, even through difficulty, God is teaching us something. He says, your desire will be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to, that, to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. And thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. God gives Adam his labor, and yet somehow we think it's good for man to work and sweat and work hard, and yet somehow he's taught something about the value of things. See, even in the curse, even through discipline, even through chastisement, God is bringing goodness. And he goes on to say, the man shall be called, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. 
Now, let me tell you, as we've talked about the past couple weeks, if you just embrace evolutionary creationism, or in other words, that God used evolution, natural processes in order for all of humankind's and our species to develop, if you accept that, you have to reword and reinterpret what Adam calls Eve. So you can't just supplement what you want, take out what you want. You have to say, God, you said it, I'll believe it. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed him. God makes the first sacrifice. He uses death to cover them. Think about that. What's he teaching? Romans will tell us that he'll put forth Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement. Atonement means to cover, to cover over, to hide. Yet, very real, he says, the Bible tells me that he made, a, made clothes for them out of skins, animal skins, the first death. Then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now least he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat it and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. And he drove out man at the east of Eden, the garden of Eden. He placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the tree of life. See this spiritual place this place, this is where we're going. But sin fractured and by God's grace so that we wouldn't live forever in this broken state, this eternal state of separation, God actually in his grace drove Adam and Eve out of the garden with the plan of redemption, a plan of salvation. See, I believe Adam and Eve were real people. I believe they made choices that you and I still wrestle with today. I think their lives begin to foreshadow ours where we decide, will we follow God's way or will we be the gods of our own universe and decide our own ways? And yet, this plan of redemption came through the offspring of the woman who would be like a new Adam and that he would give new life. As we inherited Adam's sin, we would inherit the life of Jesus through his sacrifice. Romans tells me this. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. Even over all those, sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Verse 15, chapter 5 of Romans says this, but the free gift is not like the trespass. This, this salvation, this work of Jesus, it's not even like Adam's trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. 
And the free gift is not like the result of one man's sin. For the judgment flowing one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness to reign in the life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that what we see is this ancient story is much like many of our stories where we decide right and wrong on our own. We want to live our way and more often than not, our way goes no way at all. It leads to shame and guilt and yet you made a decision. You made a plan. A plan to crush the work of Satan and redeem us and bring us back and give us a gift that we did not deserve and we could not earn. And this gift is through the person and work of Jesus Christ. This one sacrifice for all to cover our sin so that we could see that you are the way, the truth, and the life. And we live by you, for you, and through you. We repent of our rebellion when we think we have it figured out and we know all things. No, Jesus, you know all things. You are truth and we'll follow you and no other. Help us to walk one more step towards you every single day. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. Will you give Jesus one more hand clap of praise?